Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 30, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm the author of the newly released book, Spiritual Grit, and the book, Jesus-Centered Life, which sort of gave birth to this podcast, this idea that we can live our life in a normal way with everything centered around our relationship with Jesus. And it's not it's not nearly so impossible as that sounds, uh, especially if the person of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, captures and conquers you. Uh, that's really the, the pathway into a life that is wholly orbiting around Jesus, really starts with slowing down and paying better attention to who He is, to really understanding and soaking in His heart. And that's why this podcast got its name, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, really is the portal, the door into um, immersing ourselves in his heart. And when that happens, it's uh, I always compare this like a black hole in space. <laughs> that sounds funny when I say it out loud like that, but I, I actually do compare it to a black hole in space, because a black hole, if, if you remember, um, is a, a mass so heavy that its gravitational pull sucks everything within its within its radius into its gravitational pull. And there's a place called the event horizon, by which if you pass the event horizon when you're near a black hole, then there's no way you can avoid being sucked into that black hole's gravitational pull. And Jesus is like that. He's His heart is... Uh, so powerful, so heavy, I guess, if you want to call it that, that when you get closer and closer to him, at some point when you are close enough to his heart, you cross his event horizon, and you are magnetized, you are drawn into his gravitational orbit for the rest of your life. So that's what we're aiming to do on this podcast, is pay such, such attention to Jesus that we cross his event horizon and we are drawn into him, and then it's not even a question of whether we continue to follow him or not. We are we are like Peter the Apostle, who said, when Jesus asked him if he was going to leave, if he was going to reject him, and Peter said, well, where else would I go? Um, that's what we become. We become people who can't imagine ourselves apart from Jesus. So um, today we're going to continue our month-long run of episodes that focus on the shockingly tender side of Jesus. Not, and maybe that maybe that's not even the right way to put it, his tender side. That implies that he has different sides, but he's actually an integrated person who who um, is is comfortable being tough and tender, sometimes in the same interaction. But what we're doing in July is focusing on these uh, encounters he has that are marked by his tenderness. And in some cases, this tenderness is shocking. It's, it's offensive to people, even. So we want to explore these encounters to discover anew why Jesus' heart responds the way it does to the kinds of people that receive his tenderness. So 
Uh, I thought I'd start out with a story that uh, from this week that that reminded me once again of how tender Jesus is with me. So uh, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that I lead a small group every Tuesday night, every week, for the last three years. And it's uh, young people, it's, it's anywhere from middle schoolers on up to college students. We have a wide variety of, of people that show up, and we normally have a little bit of a shifting cast of characters that come every week. We have people that, uh, you know, never miss, of course, but then we have people that, you know, come maybe once or twice a month, or maybe once every couple of months, and then sometimes we have just brand new visitors. Well, the summertime is an interesting time because pe- people are traveling so much that we never know who's going to show up. And my wife and I had felt for a while that one of the things that we had not really directly pursued in the small group, um, which the motto of the, of the small group, by the way, is called Pursuing the Heart of Jesus, Not His Recipes. And all of the kids who come understand what that little motto means. It means our only purpose is to focus on Jesus' heart, not treat everything he said as if it was a recipe for better living. So our whole attention and our whole focus is really a creative, experiential way of exploring what Jesus is really like and getting to know him more deeply. Our goal, I guess you could say, is to help everyone in that group cross the event horizon of Jesus and become magnetized by him. And so uh, every week we do that in a radically different way, but we had, in the last three years, we had never really directly explored Jesus' relationship with evil, or his relationship with Satan. I have an old friend named Bob Krulish who used to ask me, how's your relationship with Satan today? (laughs) It always took me off guard. But what he was really saying is that all of us have one. We all have a relationship with the lies and deception that surround us, and those lies and deceptions we know from Scripture um, don't come all from uh, inside us, that they sometimes come from outside us, from an enemy who's called Satan. And the Bible is very clear about this, and what was embarrassing when my wife and I were talking about this is, unconsciously, we had not yet directly focused on Jesus' relationship with the demonic, with evil. And the New Testament, of course, is full of these kinds of encounters. So um, part of the reason, most likely, we hadn't focused on it yet is it's pretty intense and actually weird (laughs) to start talking about things like spiritual warfare and the spiritual realm that you can't see. And I I had just unconsciously avoided it all all this time, and I thought, you're right, Bev, I, uh, we, we need to really focus on this. So I created an experience for this last Tuesday night that was all focused on spiritual warfare and on Jesus' relationship with the demonic and how does this uh, impact our everyday life. And when I was finished creating this experience, I thought, wow, this is going to be really intense. This is going to be one of those nights where, uh, you know, even with the regulars, I, I wonder what they're going to think about this when we actually start paying attention to how much demonic forces and evil things are are talked about and dealt with in the Bible. So I, f- I felt kind of a low level of a, even a greater risk than normal. Uh, I take a lot of risks in this group, and uh, this one I knew was going to be even more risky. So we're about, oh, five minutes from when people start to gather, and I noticed a couple of the regulars walking up our driveway, and they had two girls with them that I'd never seen before. I thought, wow, that's interesting. They, 
usually uh, kids let us know if they're going to bring visitors with them because they want us to to know who they are in advance. And I uh, hadn't heard a thing about these two extras that were coming up the driveway. And so these girls walk in, and uh, I you know, introduced myself, started to get to know them, and realized that they were visiting from China. The, these two girls and their parents live near Shanghai um, in China, and her, their parents are uh, teachers in an international school, and they're good friends with the family of these two girls that are regulars. And so they were visiting from China, and the two regular girls uh, decided to invite them to a small group. So you can imagine what I'm thinking. Wow, we got two girls here that have never been here before, and they, they, they may not have ever actually even been to a small group, a Christian small group before, let alone one that's about to focus on Satan. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm starting to get kind of anxious inside, mostly because I, I don't want to do something that, that will obviously turn these kids off. So I, I pulled one of the regulars aside, and I asked her, hey, do your friends even go to church? Do they know anything about God? And she looked at me and she said, yeah, they've been to church with us before. I think they're, I think they're kind of Christian. I said, okay. <laughs> so I walked into our bedroom to pray before this was going to start, and my conversation with Jesus was something like this. Really, Jesus? <laughs> I mean, I'm already kind of every week taking risks, and this is a bigger risk than normal, and here are these two girls that I really don't know anything about show up unannounced. I think all of this is going to look and sound so weird. So on this particular night, we have unannounced guests, Jesus, really? And so I kind of just threw all this out to him. I, I got my uh, the, the stuff uh, kind of swirling around in the dark inside of me out into the light so that he could deal with it. And and here's how, G- basically, Jesus responded to me uh, there standing in the bathroom alone when I was having this animated conversation with him. Here's how he responded to me. I'm just obviously paraphrasing what I sensed him responding to me. He, he basically said, uh, son, what did you think this whole thing would feel like? Like, advancing the kingdom of God in a broken, broken world, did you think that it would feel like easy-peasy, like this sort of thing wouldn't happen? Of course you feel this way. Of course you feel awkward and a little weird and anxious about how this is going to go, and what happens if you ruin it for these girls? What happens if it's so weird they can't even take it and they get up and leave? What is that going to do to your relationship with the other kids in the group? Um, I mean, all of this kind of kind of spilling out, uh, these fears that I had were spilling out, and, and Jesus was essentially saying to me, Rick, you wouldn't be normal if you didn't feel these feelings. It's okay. And, you know, it was really powerful for me. He wasn't trying to make the situation easier. It was still going to be challenging. What he was trying to say in his own tender way is, it's okay to feel this way right now. It's okay to feel like this could be a disaster. It's okay to feel like you might really screw this up. It's okay to feel like you might look really, really weird tonight as you're talking about this, not just with the guests, but with the regulars. It's all okay. 
Of course, all of this sounds fantastical and crazy sometimes when you're talking about it in real ways. It's okay to feel the way you're feeling. It was a very tender, confident, and redirecting response from Jesus. And I went out and led the evening. <laughs> I couldn't tell what these two girls were thinking most of the evening. We had a fantastic evening. It was great. There are so many questions young people have about these kinds of things that they have no setting to, to ask them about. They have no setting to talk about. And we had this great conversation, showed a couple of clips from Stranger Things. That's a, that's, that's a show about spiritual warfare that has nothing to do with God, as far as I can tell. It's what would happen if people who don't believe in God were engaged in spiritual warfare. So we showed a couple of clips from um, Stranger Things to talk about it, but these two girls, uh, the girls from China, sat there, and I could not read their faces. I thought, man, they, they could be imploding inside. But after it was all over, I was walking our dog, and I was coming back home, and the, the four girls were just leaving as I was coming back, and they were walking down the street in the dark, and they saw me, and one of these girls from China stopped and said, Oh, oh, thank you so much for letting us come to your thing tonight. And I said, oh, you're welcome. I'm so glad you came. She, she looked at me and she said, that was awesome. <laughs> so I had no idea. But the whole evening hinged on whether I could simply relax and do what I do, lead the way I lead in this group. And that was a bit in doubt at the beginning until Jesus responded in the tender way that he did. You know, it's it's the worst feeling, to, isn't it, to feel like you're never sort of at the cool kids' table, you're always the one that does the awkward thing, the weird thing, you think you know what you're going to say, and then when it comes out, it's not the way you wished. You're just very, very aware of your flaws and what an outsider you are most often. You know, in our, in our neighborhood, there's a, a bunch of people that are very socially involved with each other, and yeah, their, their social gatherings you know, have, have just uh, never really resonated for my wife and I, so we're not, really not in the social group, and I'm mostly comfortable with that, but there are times when I'm walking past our little community center that has a pool at it, and I see all these people laughing and hanging out, and I think, well, well there must be something wrong with us, because <laughs> we're outside, we're not inside these relationships. And maybe you've even felt like other people actually avoid you sometimes because of whatever it is that's wrong with you inside. You know, situations like I described uh, with our small group sort of surface that kind of stuff in me, the insecurities I have and the, the sense that the risks that I take might blow up in my face sometimes oh, like they have before, you know. So maybe you've even felt like some people actually avoid you. I, there's a We've been cultivating—my wife and I have been cultivating a relationship with a couple that we know that I have just so much respect for the husband of this couple. I don't—I I hadn't known his wife before, but I had known about him for a while, and uh, it was one of those situations where I met somebody who was sort of like a hero to me, and then there was the possibility, hey, we could actually maybe have a friendship with this couple, because now we're in their sphere of orbit, and wow, what would it be like to have an actual relationship with somebody that you've really admired and respected from afar for a while? So my wife and I, uh, you know, on occasion would meet with them, and it seemed like it was going well. They they sometimes reached out to us and said, hey, you want to, on the spur of the moment, you want to go out and 
go out to dinner, and it seemed like this was generating into something for us, kind of miraculous. Maybe we could have a close relationship with these people. But somewhere along the way, something went off kilter, something went off the tracks. I still don't know what it is. You know how in a, a situation where you're you're having a, a long and good conversation, and maybe there was something along the way where uh, we didn't quite jive together or something, I honestly don't know what happened. All I know is that somewhere along the way, they started not really wanting to hang out with us, kind of avoiding us rather than pursuing us. That feeling, that familiar feeling that I've had for most of my life of being an outsider instead of an insider, oh boy, it got accessed right away. And there's a voice in there, uh, it's kind of a shaming voice that says, yep, yep, you're a, you're among the marginalized. <laughs> you're not in the in-crowd, you'll never be at the cool kids' table. Um, you're fundamentally flawed, that's why, and uh, all it took was some time for these people to get to know you guys, and and they spotted those flaws, and and you know they've moved on now. Those those kinds of deceptive lies, the, these these tapes that we hear inside about ourselves, sometimes they come from inside, but again, sometimes they're simply attacks from outside of us. But the, the, that's a familiar feeling for me, and I was I was reminded about how universal this can be when I I saw the uh, new documentary about Mister Rogers that's out right now, and it's been you know, lauded by critics, and uh, I went to go see it with a, a group of co-workers last week, and we watched it together and then talked about it afterwards, and it is really an incredible film um, about Fred Rogers and who, and who he was and how this kind of unusual show came about and what he was all about. And it was interesting that towards the end of the film, they showed a clip from one of his later shows when the show was a few seasons from uh, finally ending. So he's Fred Rogers was a bit older at this point, but he, you know, if you've ever watched the show, uh, puppets were a big part of the show, and Fred Rogers often played, you know, five or six or seven different characters uh, in, in, with these puppets. But there was one puppet in particular, a tiger, that all of his friends and family said that when Fred played that role of that tiger— that tiger was most like him. So they showed a scene um, from this episode that was toward the end of the show's run, where this tiger, um, you know, voiced by Fred Rogers, was having a conversation with the human woman on the show, and the tiger, in the midst of his conversation, was trying to explain the turmoil and struggle that he was feeling inside. And at one point, uh, the tiger says to the woman, "'Sometimes I wonder if I'm just a mistake.'" Well, in the documentary, friends and family say that was really Fred. That was Fred outing this dark truth he had inside, which was he struggled his whole life wondering whether he was actually just a mistake, that he was so flawed that maybe his very identity was a mistake. And it was powerful for me that he outed that lie, that deceptive, that, that deceptive but truth-sounding lie that he had harbored inside all these years, and I thought, that's that's pretty universal. I think everyone feels at one point or another, am I so flawed that I'm just a mistake? And that obviously leads to shame. How can, and how could someone so successful like Fred Rogers, so revered, so beloved, 
how could he ever feel ashamed for who he is? And yet he struggled with that his whole life. So this feeling of marginalization and of shame and of not fitting and of uh, I'm deeply flawed and broken and I'll never be at the cool kids' table and even if a promising new relationship starts, it's probably not going to go anywhere because they'll find out soon enough how flawed I am. This feeling, all of that, is an intensely familiar feeling for young people today who've grown up in a social media environment that just punishes flaws and mocks weakness of any kind. It reminded me, another film I saw recently was A Quiet Place, which was also has also been critically acclaimed film from John Krasinski. Um, it's a, I'd say it's a little film. People sometimes call it a horror film. It's not really a horror film. It's more of a suspense film in the style of kind of the classic Hitchcock films. It's in a very unusual story, though, and uh, the kind of social media environment that kids live in today reminded me of this film. This film was kind of a metaphor for it. In the story, um, it's a kind of a post-apocalyptic story set several years from today, where the Earth has been decimated by an invasion of aliens, and we learn over time that these aliens are all blind, they have no eyes, but they have acute hearing, and they have decimated humanity on, on the face of the Earth by killing everyone that they can hear. So the survivors that are left have learned how to live life not making any noise, um, never talking, they, they learn sign language, and they do all kinds of things to make sure that they can't be heard. And so the whole film is, is basically a silent film, and you're following the, the storyline of this one family who is trying to survive in the midst of this decimating situation and trying to figure out how to defeat these aliens who have no eyes but can hear very well. And in the film, if you make a noise, and it happens <laughs> in the film, where people make noises that they, that they didn't intend to, that as soon as that happens, uh, it's, it's like a swarm of these ferocious monsters find and kill you. And I think that is a great metaphor for the social media environment that young people live in today. Um, if they stick their heads out and they make any kind of noise, if they say anything that doesn't seem quite right or isn't quite hitting the note that everyone else wants, a swarm can uh, just descends on them and attacks them in a kind of a brutal way. Uh, that's I think it's it's a pretty close metaphor for what it feels like to be a young person today in the social media space. In, in the fall, we are releasing a special edition of Group Magazine, the uh, youth ministry magazine that I've been editor of for 30 years. Uh, we're releasing a special edition of this magazine, and the theme of the special edition is discipleship. And so one of the things I decided to do is find a teenager who is doing something extraordinary as a disciple of Jesus. And my uh, art director, Jeff Storm, and I were kind of scouring um, the uh, Google and news feeds to see if we could find a teenager who's a follower of Jesus who had sort of made the news for, for some reason. And we discovered um, a 19-year-old girl named Emma Mae Jenkins, who's in Arkansas, who had started her own YouTube channel not too long ago, where she's simply posting short, practical 
YouTube videos on how to live a life of following Jesus. And she got pretty popular. These short, simple videos she was posting, a lot of young people were watching. And she has an interesting, kind of quirky personality. She's she's kind of an over-the-top, joyful kind of 19-year-old kid, just bubbles over with enthusiasm for Jesus. And along the way, a mega-popular YouTuber, a guy who has his own channel, has about 2 million followers of his channel because he posts gamer videos on his channel. Somehow he ran across Emma's YouTube channel and watched one of her videos and thought it was absolutely ridiculous. So he decided to record a nine-minute video with he and his friends mocking everything they could think of to mock with Emma. They mocked her physical appearance, they mocked her belief system, they mocked everything about her. And that video went viral as well, and then Emma got into the news because of this, because it was sort of a high-profile cyberbullying situation. And part of the attention she got was because of how she responded to the vicious, mocking, destructive stuff that was said about her. She tried to embody what the Jesus she loves said about loving people, basically that, you know, big deal if you love people who love you, the mark that you're a follower of me is when you love your enemies. And so Emma did her best in this kind of cavalcade of abuse that she was receiving to love the people who were uh, brutalizing her, who were trying to bully her. So I wanted to track down Emma and do an interview with her that I can publish in our special edition of Group this fall. And I also wanted to ask her at the end of my interview what it was like to feel so marginalized, so abused, so uh, so many of your flaws and eccentricities highlighted in an abusive way, uh, like cyberbullies on social media will do. What what was what would that was like for her in the midst of it, and how did Jesus help her to walk through that um, season of her life? What was Jesus doing to help her? make it through this really brutal experience that she had. So I thought we could listen to about five minutes of my interview with Emma May. This is at the tail end of our interview, and I've just asked her, you know, what what has Jesus done to come alongside you in the midst of this persecution, when you felt just shame and fear and hurt? So let's listen to this short portion of my interview with Emma May Jenkins. Wow, it's definitely been real. It has definitely been just a real walk because words hurt. And I don't know if people sometimes realize the the power and the emphasis that is on our words, but our words are definitely powerful. And being told words that I didn't even know those words existed <laughs> and I like it it truly it it does definitely pull on some strings and it definitely does have the power to make you take a second look in the mirror and make you take a just a second thought before before you do another post of like is this actually is this worth it is this reaching people like is this actually making a difference and what I think is so beautiful about Jesus is he said in John 15 if the world hates you remember that it hated me first And so I realized that it's no longer I who live, 
but it's Christ who lives in me. And the reason that they are responding in a way that is drastic is because whenever we choose to be a light in the darkness, the darkness is going to take notice and hurt people, hurt other people. And so these people are responding, trying to hurt me because they're coming from a place of being hurt and they don't know how else to respond because they've never been shown that love. They've, or they've never seen this light. And so they're going to respond to it in a way that's, I just don't know what this girl is doing. And so I'm going to respond the way I only know how, and that's out of a place of hurting. And so whenever you realize that, okay, I, this is happening because I am his, this is happening because there, God is wanting to do something for his glory. So, you know what, I'm just going to keep going because his something that he always reminds me of is Acts 20, 24. And in Acts 20, 24, it says, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by you, Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of you. And so it's just, a, it's so powerful and it's so beautiful to remember why I'm here. Like seeing it through eternity eyes. Okay, I'm here to love God and I'm here to love his people. And I'm here for something so much bigger than a comment. And I'm here for something so much bigger than words that are going to change through an opinion tomorrow. And so it's like, okay, while I'm going to keep on going, I got to keep on going because I know that something powerful is happening in the spiritual realm. I know that God is working all things together for good. I know that what man intend to harm me, my God is working together for good. And because I see myself the way that he sees me, and I can only do that because I spend time with him daily, I can see them the way that he sees them. And in Luke 6, 27 through 28, and this is something that Jesus reminds me of all the time. It says, you've been told to love those who love you back. But Mr. Rick, that is so easy to do. It is so easy to love people who are nice to you and love people who do great things for you. It's so easy to do that. But Jesus, I just love him. He said, but very truly, I tell you to love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you and bless those who curse you. And it's so fun because it truly is like you were saying, he was tender when it didn't make sense to be tender. And he was a savage whenever people weren't expecting him. He would, he would say what they were thinking. And that's what it truly is by walking out a relationship with Christ is it causes us to respond in such a way that the world says we should do the complete opposite. The world says whenever people are mean to you, you need to be mean back or you need to stop doing what you're doing so that they'll approve of you. But Jesus is like, no, I just, I want you to remain, I want you to remain steadfast in me. I just want you to keep your eyes on me. I just want you to keep on loving my people. And I actually want you to pray for them. I actually want you to love them. I actually want you to bless them because whenever you're willing to do that wholeheartedly for me, I will plant seeds through you today that will allow them to be sitting beneath the shade of a tree tomorrow. Okay. So there you have the MMA experience. <laughs> she is an experience. You know, I, I, I kept thinking as I was interviewing her, I talked to her for 45 minutes. I thought, wow, Emma, your enemies don't know what hit them. <laughs> You're like a tsunami of joy and belief and 
certainty about the heart of Jesus. She is a force, but she's a, a force in the midst of darkness. I love what she said at the beginning, that if you're going to be light in the darkness, the darkness is going to take notice and come after you. And she's aware of that, and obviously she's 19, she's got a lot of living left to do, and when you are light in the darkness, you get wounds along the way. And But she's really talking about how she's responding to those wounds, and how Jesus, knowing Jesus at a deeper level, knowing the heart of Jesus, is helping her to navigate this really choppy waters. All teenagers experience some kind of uh, brutality like she's describing. It's just hers is magnified a hundred times over and has been spread all over the world <laughs> by so many people who have seen this you know, mocking uh, video that was shot. Uh, it's fascinating to listen to Emma at a young age trying to navigate this brutality and even the, the feelings that it can cause when you look in the mirror and wonder if any of the, all that any of that kind of terrible brutal feedback is actually true am i really just a mistake um, sometimes that insidious voice just lurks inside of us so do you do you ever hold back because you're nervous about how people will respond if they saw the real you do you ever maybe struggle to accept yourself or to accept the love of jesus because you just feel like, well, whatever I am, it's not enough. And by the way, the idea that I'm not enough is the number one lie of the enemy of God. If you go to any group of people, any group of Christian people, and you ask them, write down um, a lie that you think that you have believed um, about yourself. Write down a lie that you have believed about yourself. Um about 75% of that group will write something like, I'm not enough. Um, I've seen this happen over and over again. It is the number one lie of the enemy of God, and the reason why he uses it so much is because A, it works, and B, he's lazy. Uh, He doesn't want to have to work too hard, and this is a lie that works really well. All he has to do is get it planted in us and get us to accept it and believe it, and our self-destruction begins with that seed. So it doesn't take too much to leverage us into this lie. So let's pay some ridiculous attention to Jesus and some encounters he had with the flawed and the marginalized and the shamed. Um, I want us to focus on how he responded to these people and what he did to engage them and to to redeem them and to set them free from their captivity. So we're just going to touch briefly on a couple of stories, and then we're going to camp um, a little bit more on the third story. So the first story is from Matthew 26, so if you're not driving and you have a Bible around, you want to open it to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to uh, look at a couple of quick places here in Matthew and then skip over to John. This is um, three little scenes from the life of Peter uh, towards the end when uh, Jesus and his disciples are at the Last Supper, and Jesus is telling his disciples about what's about to happen to him, and Peter, because he's bold and courageous and headstrong and a leader, um, he doesn't like what Jesus is saying. So here's, here's where this starts in verse 31 of chapter 26 of Matthew. 
On the way, Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. Now, on the way means that they're, they're headed to Gethsemane at this point. So they've left the, where, they, where they had the Last Supper, and they're on their way to Gethsemane. And so Jesus says, tonight all of you will desert me, for the Scriptures say God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Well, Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You'll deny that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same thing. Now we skip over in the same chapter to verse 69, um, and here's where the story picks up. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Um, This is where Jesus was uh, before the council inside. The high priest and the council were grilling him. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came over and said to him, "'You were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean.' Peter denied it in front of everyone. "'I don't know what you're talking about,' he said." And later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, "'Hey, this man was, was with Jesus of Nazareth.' And again, Peter denied it, and this time with an oath. It means he cursed when he said it. Uh, there was a lot of emotion in him. "'I don't even know the man,' he said. And a little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, "'You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent.' And Peter swore again." A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter went away weeping bitterly. Now we're going to flip over to John chapter 21 to uh, finish out the end of this story. So... This brutal encounter happens, and Peter goes away weeping uh, bitterly, and we don't hear about him again until after the resurrection. Uh, he's, he's gone. He's not at the cross. We don't see him anywhere. Um, likely, his identity has been crushed because he was so bold in proclaiming what he would do if it ever came to it, and then he doesn't do it. He does the very thing a man like him uh, despises, and it crushes him. And we pick up the story, what's going to happen with Peter here, in John chapter 21, starting in verse 10. Um, Peter and some of the other disciples have gone out to fish overnight because they don't know what to do. Uh, This confusing thing about Jesus not being in the tomb any longer and appearing to the disciples and what's happening here. So they they don't know what their next step is going to be, so they decide to go out fishing um, on, on the Sea of Galilee. And they, didn't, they catch nothing, and then they, they see Jesus on the shore. And uh, Peter jumps out of the boat and thrashes his way to shore to get there before the boat does, because he just has to be near Jesus. And this is where the story picks up in verse 10. Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And by the way, Jesus uh, obviously tells them to throw their net over the side of their boat, even though they've caught nothing all night and they catch so many fish it almost swamps the boat. So Jesus says, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. 
Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said, and none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish, and this was the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Well, yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Well, then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death by which he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. So here's the first story, and let's just camp on this for just a second. Uh, here's Peter, um, the, the bold, decisive uh, leader that Jesus early on said, uh, the church is going to rest on the foundation of you, Peter. Your boldness and what you do once I'm gone is going to form the foundation for my movement, my infiltration of the kingdom of God into the earth. Here's this guy who knows that this is his identity, but um, all of a sudden he's destroyed, marginalized. He's, he's come face to face with his deepest flaws and his own brokenness. How can he recover from this? And uh, in his eagerness to come to Jesus, we see the heart of Peter for what it really is. Because after his shattering, the one thing that remains, the one thing that he most longs for is to be near Jesus, is to be with him again. And so in the midst of his shame, no matter what, it, what, what its source, he thrashes through the water to get near to Jesus. And then Jesus does something remarkable— in his private conversation with Peter, he asks him a question three times for the very purpose of surfacing his shame. He want, Jesus wants Peter's shame out in the light. He wants the thing that Peter's been roiling over inside to get out into the sunlight. And so he asks him this difficult question three times, do you love me? And, then, and, and at the end of this, when, when the the shame has been surfaced like a poison in Peter, and, it, and, he, and he cries out, you know I love you, then Jesus reiterates his mission. I want you to feed my sheep. Follow me, Peter. He reinstalls Peter, on the, not on the basis of uh, an identity that Peter has propped up, but on the basis of Jesus telling him the truth about his identity. This is who you really are. Now that we got this shame out in the light, let's go. This is who you really are. Now the second story is in Luke chapter 19, and this is Jesus' invitation to Zacchaeus, and it starts in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. 
Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if, if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. I love this little vignette um, because it's so simple and so profound. So Zacchaeus, the ultimate outsider, the ultimate marginalized guy, hated by so many, because, and for good reason. He's, he's a cheater. He's a betrayer. He has impacted people's lives in a highly negative way. There, there's no reason for people to respond well to Zacchaeus, and yet Jesus sees this marginalized, broken, abused man who doesn't fit anywhere in his society, and what he does is profoundly invite himself into Zacchaeus's life. Um, Zacchaeus would never have dared to invite Jesus to his home. It would have seen impossible that Jesus would have responded to him and said yes. The only way this encounter could have happened is if Jesus invited himself. And it's, it's almost like uh, when I told you the story of uh, the couple we were trying to befriend and the, these feelings of always being on the outside, never on the inside— uh, were surfaced through that whole encounter. It's almost as if a person who's the ultimate insider f- searches you out, picks you out of a crowd, and says, I'd like you to be inside. I'd like you to be one of my confidants. I'd like to hang out with you. There's something about you that I, I'm really drawn to. So Jesus, again, in this situation, draws out Zacchaeus's. Um, inherent sense of brokenness and flawedness and um, his sense of marginalization, but the way he highlights it is by inviting him in. And this longing that we have to be in, um, I don't think it'll ever fully be realized until we are finally in with Jesus. The, The only tastes we really get of this that are certain and solid are when we feel invited in by Jesus. And he certainly is going to invite you and you and you and you in. If, he's, if he sees in Zacchaeus his inherent beauty through all of his flaws, then he certainly sees your inherent beauty through all of your flaws, and he intends to invite you in. Now let's just close by paying attention to this last story. It's in Luke chapter 7. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, because it's so riveting. It's so unexpected. So it's in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, and I'll read this and we'll talk about it just for a second here as we head toward closing. In my Jesus-centered Bible, this section is called Jesus Anointed by a Sinful Woman. (laughs) What if your name in the Bible was sinful? (laughs) That's how you were known uh, by who you were in in the Bible. So, starting in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume, and then she knelt 
behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, Well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Well, that's right, Jesus said, and then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So he's turned to the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. Hey, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and there many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only a little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Jesus turned again to the woman and said, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here Jesus is responding to the ultimate outsider, the one person that everyone at this gathering was shocked would ever show her face. She not only should never have come to this gathering, but she should never have come on multiple levels. She was an immoral woman, most likely a prostitute, well-known in town, and she was a woman, and she was uninvited, and she was overly intimate with the um, esteemed invited guest. Instead of acknowledging anyone else in the room, she makes a beeline for him and immediately is racked with emotion as she pours perfume on his feet and weeps over his feet from behind. It's such a radical act of humility and desperate pursuit of Jesus in this, in this moment. And Jesus tells this story of when your debt when your large debt has been forgiven, then your gratefulness overflows. So in this encounter that Jesus has, there's so many things that that uh, pop up that are electric uh, because of what she's done. But her response to this, his response to this woman is tender because he can see her broken, humble heart. She's not hanging on to her sin. She's not shoving it in his face. She's instead acknowledging what a broken person she is and weeping over, over his feet and anointing his feet with expensive perfume. She's, she's doing something that costs her to do in so many ways. It costs her to show up at a party she's not invited to. It costs her to listen to what people are saying about her while she's there, and it costs her just to buy the perfume but it's the cost that she offers Jesus that captures his heart. And when he says, your faith has set you free, that your faith has saved you, what he really means is, your faith is in me. Your tremendous, unvarnished, raw trust in me has saved you. And I think there, there is a way forward 
for us also in this story. If we think about what is dangerous about Jesus' tenderness toward this woman, well, from his perspective, he could lose followers, for sure. Um, he, he might even be kicked out of this dinner party for how he's talking right now, because he's suddenly made everyone mad by his response to her. He could be seen as tacitly supporting her lifestyle as well, or he could be risking confusion over his stance on what's right and what's wrong, because, you know, we, we all prefer black and white standards, and Jesus models God's character instead. He, God cares about our heart, and he's zealously committed to marginalized people. But we would really rather Jesus be hot or cold, either tender or tough, because it's this unpredictability that really drives us nuts. Like the previous story in Scripture about the woman caught in adultery, who Jesus asks a series of unanswerable questions to those who want to stone her, and then he's left alone with the woman in the end, he, he does an incredibly tender thing by saving her life, but at the end of that encounter, he's a little bit tough. He says, go and sin no more to her. So he's both tender and tough in the same encounter. So what does it mean for us to give way to the Spirit of Jesus in these kinds of situations, for us and for others? Well, l- let me just wrap up by g- giving you something to think about from this encounter Jesus has with this woman. What do children do when they're hurt or afraid or feel ashamed? Well, they do what this woman did. They kiss his feet and cry. They kiss his feet and cry. They kiss his feet and they cry. So if you're in this place where you feel marginalized, outside, flawed, maybe I'm a mistake, there's nothing, there's no recipe and formula that's going to fix this for you. We do live in a broken world, and we are ourselves broken and on our way to being restored by the beauty and love of Jesus. But we see our brokenness everywhere still. How do we overcome this sense of flawedness and outsiderness? Well, we do what she did. We, we have the courage to approach him when it costs us. And when we get to him, we kiss his feet and we cry. We show him how much we love his heart. And we let the emotion of all of that stuff in us come out. We offer it. We wash his feet with our tears. That's something anyone can do, no matter what place you're in. Kiss his feet and cry. Hey, gang, if that's for you, just know that, that we're praying for you. We understand this is what life's like. And the reason we do this podcast and... Uh, delve into stories just like this, as we recognize all of us um, have feet of clay. All of us are insecure in one way or another, and all of us, like Fred Rogers, sometimes wonder, am I a mistake? Well, that's the time to draw near, not, not, not avoid Jesus, but draw near to him, as near as you can get, close enough to kiss his feet, and then let it all out. Get what's inside out. So if you want uh, more information about things we've talked about today, um, but maybe in greater detail, you can head to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Uh, just find our podcast section, and you're, this one you're looking for Season 3, Episode 30. And don't forget, 
We're still in July, so if, if you want some summer reading or want to take the last half of the summer and have a little a book club gathering in your home, pick up a copy of Spiritual Grit or The Unreasonable Jesus, two books that have both been released recently by us. They're great summer reading for summer reading, and they, they both have uh, small group questions at the end of every chapter that makes it easy for you to have kind of a book club small group time this summer. So next week I'll be at the Simply Jesus Gathering in the mountains of Colorado uh, for three or four days. Maybe I'll see a few of you there. Uh, while I'm there, I'm going to record a couple of interviews for this podcast, so I'm looking forward to see who I can snag when I'm there, and we'll find out in the coming weeks um, who we're going to be listening to. So remember, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Life Tree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.